Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond. Hello and welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's Friday, the 11th of March. My name is Rosie McCabe. And my name's Hugo Goodrich. And we'll be your host today, coming to you from London. This week, as the war in Ukraine continues to dominate global events, we'll explore how states in the Middle East have responded to the invasion and what it means for future relations. And then we speak to the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association about Western coverage of the conflict and the problematic nature of some of the reporting. In the early hours of February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine. After months of grim warnings and failing diplomatic efforts, Moscow, under the directive of President Vladimir Putin, launched an offensive on several Ukrainian cities, including the capital, Kyiv. Over the past two weeks, hundreds of civilians have been killed and millions forced from their homes. For the Middle East, the invasion of Ukraine has brought into sharp focus how the region has and is continuing to realign itself among major global players. Countries in the region have been forced to weigh up their loyalties, needs and strategic long-term thinking. So, how have states in the Middle East chosen to respond to the invasion of Ukraine? Why have they reacted this way? And what does this tell us about the world's geopolitical realignment? To understand why Russia invaded Ukraine, we spoke to Inna Minikovska, a Ukrainian and assistant professor in comparative political economy at the Central European University. There are a lot of explanations there. So the, the most frequently used is probably geopolitical fight between NATO and Russia. I think this explanation is rather uh, the product of Russian propaganda uh, and it is far from reality and facts on the ground. The other common explanation is that Putin is just crazy <laughs> and because he doesn't think about strategic national interest, I don't think so. If you look at internal dynamics of Putin's regime, then it's, uh, his behavior is very uh, rational one. A couple of years ago, we had this failed modernization project in Russia, and so the legitimacy of Putin regime became increasingly built on manufacturing of imagined threats, uh, threats that are going from outside, first of all, liberal world and democratic ideas, and also from inside, yes, of democratic opposition and NGOs were shut up and closed, had to leave Russia. Inna sees Putin's war as a war against democracy. But what are relations like between Ukraine and the Middle East? Uh, Middle East countries were not the main Ukrainian priority. So probably we were too much busy with our own businesses and affairs. It's probably then not surprising that there is no this affinity between the countries of the Middle East to Ukraine, that there is nothing there of very little economic relations or sort of historical relations that would help to bring those people, uh, those countries more actively 
in this war. While Ukraine has no strong ties to the Middle East, Russia, over recent years, has become deeply entrenched. And for Ukrainians like Inna, they do not want these Middle Eastern countries that have felt the force of Russia to sit idly by. Ideally, of course, it would be good that they take a stance and they do not they get rid of these mediator roles because you have a clear party of war and the party of peace in this in this conflict that cannot be a mediators between them. Something is it's not the shadow area. There is clear darkness and uh, the light there. But at least, at minimal, I would say uh, they should not support Russian aggressive foreign policies. Inna's message is clear. It's time for the Middle East to get off the fence and pick a side. Currently, it's not a message that the Middle East is hearing. The Western response to Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine has been unanimous. Condemnation and consternation. In the Middle East, the picture has been varied. It was no surprise when the likes of Iran and Syria made no effort to criticise Russian actions. But at the outset of the invasion, one outlier did raise diplomatic eyebrows. When the UN Security Council came to vote on a US-led resolution to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, United Arab Emirates, a traditionally close ally of the US, abstained from the vote. Well, I think for the UAE, it's a reflection both of their position, broadly speaking, of uh, trying to balance among their core partners, US, Russia, China. This is Gerald Feierstein, former U.S. ambassador to Yemen and current senior vice president at the Middle East Institute and director of the Arabian Peninsula Program. Uh, We have understood and they've been uh, very clear in saying that from their perspective, they don't want to be caught in the middle of what we call great power competition or strategic competition in the region. The UAE and the U.S. have largely followed in each other's footsteps when it comes to foreign policy. Deviations have occurred, notably in relation to policies in Libya, actions in Yemen and events in Egypt in 2013, to name a few. But for the most part, they've both acted as friendly bedfellows. But when it came to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the US diplomatically dived in, the UAE remained at the edge of the pool. I think it signifies the growing significance of this competition in the region uh, and the fact that for a variety of reasons, the UAE as well as Saudi Arabia and others in the region are pursuing more independent foreign policy positions and that they are no longer uh, immediately going to fall into line with the United States. While the UAE is not critical to successful US foreign policy, it is preferred particularly when it comes to the role that the UAE and other Gulf countries can play in the energy markets. I think that we would have liked to have seen the major Gulf oil producers do more to help stabilise the international or the global uh, energy market. Uh, And I think that that's probably a disappointment on, on the part of the administration. 
Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the price of oil has skyrocketed, which is good news if you're a nation that heavily relies on oil production. They undoubtedly are are happy uh, with the run-up in, in oil prices. I, I think I just saw this morning that Brent uh, uh, oil is at about $130 a barrel. So compared to where it was even a few months ago when it was about $80 a barrel, you know, it's a significant improvement on their books. And I think that they uh, are generally supportive of Russia's engagement in the OPEC plus, you know, I, I think that, that they see Russia as a partner on, on the energy. Indications of the Gulf's satisfaction with the rising price of oil were made abundantly clear when it was reported that both the UAE and Saudi Arabia were avoiding any communication with the Biden administration. Previously, OPEC plus, the organization of the petroleum exporting countries, announced in a statement that it would increase production by 400,000 barrels per day in April. However, this represents a small fraction of the 10 million barrels a day that Russia was producing and are unlikely to enter global markets due to sanctions. And when it comes to their response to events in Ukraine, the UAE and other Gulf nations are looking to their customer base, which isn't for the most part, the U.S. Um, and then you, you should also keep in mind that, you know, where where Russia goes, so goes China. And uh, China, of course, is a far more significant player in the Gulf than Russia is. Uh, China is the number one trading partner uh, for the UAE and, and other uh, Gulf states. Um, it's a major ec- uh, uh, exporter or major source of of technology for the the Gulf region. So the the fact that that China has been generally supportive of the Russian position uh, is another factor in in helping to determine for the Emiratis and others uh, that they can afford to not necessarily challenge, but certainly not go along with the West on its approach to the Ukraine. However, Despite the rising cost of oil and the growing bank balances in the Gulf, the West still can cast a dominant financial shadow over the region. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that the UAE, particularly Dubai, uh, is a major financial and commercial hub for Russia. Uh, there are a lot of trade ties that go back and forth. Uh, Dubai is a major destination for uh, tourism out of Russia. Uh, And so if the uh, sanctions are made broadly applicable and reach beyond uh, just Russia and Belarus, Dubai would be very vulnerable to seeing its companies and and commercial uh, enterprises sanctioned, uh, banks sanctioned. So uh, to the extent that these uh, sanctions continue and perhaps are even increased, UAE definitely will be affected by the uh, application. As things stand, the UAE and other Gulf countries look set to engage in a balancing act between profiteering from high oil prices while doing their best to avoid exposure to Western sanctions. Such a strategy is to be expected, but they will also have to contend with their image on the international stage. 
If the conflict in Ukraine continues in its current form, that is to say, marked by Russian atrocities and the targeting of civilians, the UAE and other Gulf states could find themselves facing intense Western pressure to take a much firmer stance. Additionally, for the UAE, the Russian invasion of Ukraine could not have happened at a worse time. The other, the other point to keep in mind is that the UAE itself is in a very uncomfortable position. As you, as you pointed out, they abstained on the first uh, vote to condemn the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, are there going to be more Security Council resolutions? UAE just started their, their two-year term on January 1st. It runs until December 31st. 2023, uh, there's a possibility that there are going to be many more votes about Ukraine in the Security Council. And does the UAE continue to abstain on them? Uh, And is that going to have blowback in terms of how they're perceived here in Washington or in uh, Paris or London or, or other major European capitals? So it's going to be very complicated and the UAE in particular is going to be in a difficult position if this conflict carries on in one form or another uh, over a prolonged period of time. This delicate balancing act between different players and factors has also been evident in other countries across the region, namely Turkey. Turkey's position is strategically tenable but morally suspect. This is Stephen Cook a senior fellow for the Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and an expert in Arab and Turkish politics. Stephen's summary of Turkey's response to the invasion of Ukraine, to me, encapsulates how Ankara has reacted in a nutshell. An ally of both Moscow and Kyiv, Turkey has sought to preserve relations with both countries. While vocalising support for the Ukrainian resistance, the side Turkey has ultimately chosen is Turkey's. The Turks have emphasize that they support Ukraine's independence. They have, in fact, supplied some uh, weaponry to, to Ukraine. But unlike some other countries in the region, the Turks have not sanctioned Russia. They have not closed their airspace to Russian aircraft. And they continue to want to have a dialogue with Russia. So, on the one hand, the Turkish government has designated what's happening in Ukraine as a war. Erdogan has called the invasion, quote, unacceptable, end quote. Ankara has closed the Bosphorus Strait to warships and has previously supplied Ukraine with combat drones, which Kyiv has heralded as playing a key part in their military resistance. On the other hand, Turkey has not joined Western economic sanctions and has not closed its airspace. Turkish ministers have been careful to emphasise that the supply of combat drones was in a private capacity and should not be seen as military aid. Ankara said, according to pro-government newspaper Daily Sabah, it has maintained a, quote, neutral and balanced stance, end quote, and, quote, continues its diplomatic efforts to de-escalate the Ukraine conflict, urging all sides to exercise restraint, end quote. Turkey does not want war in the region. This is Murat Aslan, who teaches at Sabatin Zaim University of Istanbul. He's also a former member of the Turkish Armed Forces. Uh, Turkey has good relations with Russia, not only limited by, you know, Astana process in Syria, but uh, economy, energy, tourism, agriculture, etc. In the meantime, uh, Turkey has really 
uh, well-planned and developing relations with Ukraine, similar to Russia. So if the, if the war erupts between two countries, that means it will be Turkey that, that does have a burden on the shoulders because Turkey will lose both. So Turkish policy uh, in case of the uh, escalation and during the crisis management period was just first to manage the crisis and in the meantime offer a type of mediation. Indeed, on March 10th, Turkey hosted a meeting between the foreign ministers of Ukraine and Russia with the objective of facilitating a ceasefire. Ukraine's foreign minister said there had been no progress to achieving a ceasefire in reports after the meeting. We also raised the issue of a ceasefire, 24-hour ceasefire, to resolve the most pressing humanitarian issues. We did not make progress on this since uh, it seems that there are other decision makers uh, for this this matter in Russia. Moscow blamed the West for causing the conflict, while Ukraine said it was ready for diplomacy, but would also continue to defend itself. So, what is driving Turkey's response in seeking a middle way? Uh, There are some reasons. The The first sets of reasons are internal. I think that Turkey has already experienced an economic escalation, economic crisis. Second thing, Turkey is in many countries dealing with many crises, and Turkey is surrounded with many different political potential escalations. Well, you can count Iran, Iraq, Syria, Eastern Mediterranean, Cyprus issue, Libya, and Bosnia has a great potential to escalate in the coming term because of the Russian pressure on Serbs to maybe challenge the Western Hemisphere. The war in Syria, said Stephen, is critical for understanding Turkey's response. The Turks are supportive of the Ukrainians, um, but have to be very careful where they tread with the Russians because Russia is the kingmaker in Syria of all places. And it is in Syria where Turkey's core interests in preventing the emergence of an autonomous Kurdish state or autonomous Kurdish zone in the northern part of the country up along the border between Syria and Turkey is the most important thing for Turkey. And the fear is, is that if Syria actually breaks up, there will be a terrorist state on Turkey's border. And that's why it is. Some pundits, mostly from the West, say this moment is an opportunity for Turkey, a country in economic peril sandwiched between escalating conflicts. With increasingly tense relations to Washington, London and Brussels, Ankara could use its unique position as a NATO member with connections to Kyiv and Moscow to salvage ties and improve its geopolitical standing. Stephen says this is unlikely to happen because of Syria. I'm aware of those arguments and what people are saying about, you know, this is a real opportunity for Turkey. And it, it might be if the Turks really were in a better position geostrategically with regard to Russia. But since they're dependent upon the Russians in Syria, it's very hard for them to make the break. And I think what the people who are making these arguments are tending to downplay is how important it is for Turkey to thwart the ambitions of Kurds in northern Syria. Also, let's not forget that souring relations between Turkey and the West cannot be fixed overnight. Turkey's purchase of the Russian S-400 defence system and its slide towards authoritarian rule under Erdogan following a 2016 coup attempt has created a yawning gap between Ankara and the West. In an attempt to do something rather than nothing, 
Turkey did make the decision to close the Bosporus Strait. But this was derided by critics as a symbolic gesture, rather than a genuine offer of solidarity with Ukraine and the West. However, there are those who think the move is worth noting in terms of Turkey's cautious steps westward. Think that if there happens something in the Black Sea, and if the Russian Navy needs a type of augmentation, then they have to transfer them. Second thing, vice versa. I mean, if these warships are in danger just because of an escalation, Russia will attempt to provide a support to them, right? So it's a it's a really important decision. Uh, whether it's purely symbolic or purely political and isn't going to have necessarily the you know, kind of strategic impact on uh, Russian uh, thinking, it doesn't diminish the fact that it is a very important step. And it is one of those things that you can, you know, mark on the Ukraine side of the ledger as the Turks try to navigate this fine line. And I, I, I... But ultimately, both Murat and Stephen concluded that protecting Turkey's interests, ergo maintaining relations with Moscow, came before any moral stance or solidarity with the West. So, what happens if things continue to escalate? When it is no longer possible to chart a middle way, will Turkey be forced to take a side? Can you, can you just predict that tomorrow there will be peace or conflict or any new emerging uh, challenge? I don't think so. So it's a dynamic process. And in this process, Turkey must be prepared, but in the meantime, should clarify the options and select the most appropriate one, pending to global demands, regional practices, Ukrainian uh, situation, Russian position, and internal politics. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was shocking to behold, and the tactics employed by Putin's army have also shocked many. For others, the targeting of civilian areas and infrastructure has a depressing sense of deja vu. Every kind of tools we witness it in Syria is currently used by the Russian army in Ukraine with different dynamics and some nuances, but the tools are the same. This is Ruslan Trad, a journalist and author covering Russia, Syria, conflicts and hybrid warfare. For example, uh, attacking uh, civilians infrastructure, which at the first Many analysts uh, consider that the Russian army will be not so brave to use such tactic in Ukraine because this is one prejudice, but it is Europe and Ukraine and uh, uh, the population is uh, very close to the Russian one. And that was one big mistake. Russia entered the Syrian conflict on the side of the Bashar al-Assad regime in 2015 with devastating results for the civilian population. They helped turn the tide in the favour of the Assad regime and crushed dissent across much of the country. It also gave Putin's army valuable battlefield experience. But also Syria is like a testing field. It is like a big military camp where Russian army use it to test uh, new kind of weapons or improving the old weapons. We have information, including the official statements from Kremlin, that the Russian army has tested more than 200 weapons 
in Syria. And we know that this means civilian population and mostly uh, basic civilian infrastructure. Even part of these uh, weapons and this military uh, buildup massed on the Ukrainian border is also tested in Syria. In Syria, as they are now doing in Ukraine, the Russian army sought to use extreme violence to break the will of the people. Their mantra? Bomb them into submission. Target residential buildings, vital infrastructure and civilian areas. We've seen these same tactics applied in Ukraine. Parallel to the kinetic conflict in the streets, Russia's time in Syria has also taught them the importance of disinformation and misinformation tactics. A quick search on social media will produce numerous posts spreading everything from unfounded rumours and gossip to wholly false statements. In Syria, Russia spread lies about the work of the White Helmets, who continue to work tirelessly to rescue civilians from buildings after airstrikes. In Ukraine, they are alleging secret US-funded biochemical weapons laboratories and that Ukraine is bombing its own civilians. These humanitarian corridors, uh, wildly uh, discussed right now in, in Ukraine, this is part of the toolbox used by Russian army. We witnessed this in Syria and the humanitarian corridors is a failure and will be a failure in Ukraine too because the main idea behind the humanitarian corridor, by the way, planned and organized by the same Russian team provided this planning for the Assad regime in Aleppo or in other parts of Syria like uh, Eastern Ghouta or Damascus. Uh, they are behind this planning of humanitarian corridors currently in Ukraine, the same people. And I believe the humanitarian corridors will fail. We, we already witnessed it two times. These corridors were bombed by Russian forces. And that is the idea. I mean, it is hard to be said, but the idea is more civilian casualties. So this is one of the many tools uh, used in Syria and Ukraine. The lessons that Russia learnt in Syria are now being applied in Ukraine. But Syria also serves as a powerful card in Russia's deck, a tool that can be used to apply pressure on foreign governments, most notably Israel. Israel have good relations both with Ukraine and Russia because of history, because of diplomacy and also the geopolitical importance. For Israel, Syria is much more important than Ukraine because this is neighbor country, many unresolved issues, including Golan Heights and uh, providing uh, Iran with um, positions inside Syria could be dangerous for Israel. You know, this is the important thing. After uh, Russian intervention, the power shift is very visible. While they have urged dialogue, and made disapproving statements regarding the situation in Ukraine, Israel has been a lot more muted in criticism of Russia. On March 5th, when most global leaders were speaking out against President Putin, Israel's Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, travelled to the Kremlin to meet with the Russian leader. Israel values the role played by Russia in Syria and its efforts to keep the spread of Iran limited. As they see it, they cannot afford to fall out with Moscow. 
the Russian experience in Syria and their continued presence is playing a vital role in their invasion of Ukraine. However, Russia is unlikely to shield the already battered Syria from the Ukrainian fallout. Like dominoes, actions in one part of the world are far-reaching. Actions and events in Ukraine were far-reaching in Africa and Asia. High food prices carry security risk in Africa as do high foil prices in Asia. And Syria is part of this, this global event because it depends on supplies from Russia. Also, asset regime is dependent on oil and uh, other commodities supplied by Russian army and Iran. One uh, analyst described the situation as uh, Ukrainian crisis to take Syria from bad to worse because of the whole fallout of Russian invasion in Ukraine, the Syrian regime already announced the spending cuts and the spend shortage, price hikes in oil and food commodities, even transportation costs. So for the population in Syria, the war in Ukraine will be disaster. And not only Syria, we have also signals in Africa and many countries around the world dependent of this supply of wet and uh, any kind of basic uh, foods and uh, providing energy resources. The war in Ukraine is entering into its third week, and there is no indication that Putin will give up on his brutal ambition, nor will Ukraine cease in its heroic defence. The longer the conflict continues, the tightrope walked by Middle East states between Kyiv and Moscow will only get higher. Moreover, the risks associated with indecision will only increase. Final words to Inna. If it is not about normative uh, agenda, that one should think about implications in terms of uh, international law, peaceful coexistence of countries, international peace that was broke down uh, by Russian uh, invasion. And this is something, a sort of public world goods that need to be taken care about independently of normative uh, stance of any country. Yes, so it's like because this is a good international peace, it's a public good, world goods that we need to take care about. The media coverage of Ukraine has been robust, comprehensive and brave. However, it has, at times, also been problematic. Recently, the Arab and Middle East Journalists Association, Amija, published a statement responding to what they called, quote, implicit and explicit bias, end quote, in how Western media reported Russia's invasion. The statement blew up on social media. It called out journalists from CBS, Al Jazeera and The Telegraph who recycled Orientalist and racist stereotypes when commenting on the shock factor of the situation in Ukraine. Indeed, the situation is shocking and unjust, but, Amija said, a tired narrative had resurfaced, a narrative that served to normalise and dehumanise conflict in the Middle East and North Africa. We started to see certain news reports that were really disturbing to us. This is Mona Iskander, a freelance producer and founding board member of Amija. 
Um, the first one actually was a CBS News segment on, on February 26th. Uh, and the correspondent said, and I'll quote him, but this isn't a place with all due respect like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, city, one where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. We all said, this is this is just not okay. You know, that, that kind of language that, first of all, the words are, you know, to say relatively civilized. Um, it, it kind of, you know, immediately creates this comparison to other parts in the world um, that are experiencing conflict. Amija then found more and more examples of this casual othering, said Mona. So then we said we, we really should put out a statement as an Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association condemning this kind of coverage. Um, you know, we said that we're, we're calling on news organizations to be mindful of implicit and explicit bias in their coverage of the war in Ukraine. Examples cited by the organization include a piece from The Telegraph, which started, quote, They seem so like us. This is what makes it so shocking. War is no longer something visited upon by impoverished and remote populations, end quote. They also featured a comment from anchor Peter Dobby on Al Jazeera. Quote, These are not obviously refugees looking to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war, end quote. Dobby described the refugees fleeing Ukraine as looking like, quote, any European family that you would live next door to, end quote. Uh, but we also wanted to be very clear that we first and foremost stood with the stand with the Ukrainian people and, and what they're going through, because that is really, uh, you know, for us, we stand with um, the, the, the pain and suffering that they're going through, because that's really the most important thing. But what we said is that, you know, this is, this is not the kind of scenario where we want to normalize tragedy in other parts of the world, you know, by, by using words like, um, you know, uh, war is no longer something visited upon impoverished and remote populations. I mean, that, that immediately creates this scenario where, where you say, well, war is just, it's, uh, it's something that people in other parts of the world, like Afghanistan and the Middle East, they're just used to that. A number of journalists and media organisations have since apologised for their comments, including CBS and Al Jazeera. People should choose their words carefully because words matter, said Mona. I do think comparisons can be helpful, but they have to be done in a responsible way that doesn't belittle or put down other, you know, um, communities that are also struggling. I mean, I mean, there, you know, there's also just like lack of coverage, right? I mean, there's, you know, that we, there are struggles happening all over Africa that don't even get any coverage. And so why is that? I think we need to really think about that and, and ask ourselves, why, why are we not seeing that? Mona also said news organisations should be mindful of the real-life double standards between responses to conflict and treatment of refugees. They must understand that their coverage affects policy. So, how do we stop this narrative of othering from resurfacing? Amija urged newsrooms to train correspondents on the cultural and political nuances of the regions they're reporting on. I mean, obviously, as a journalist, you have to know your journalism 101, but you also have to know what what is this area you're going to cover. And so I think it's incumbent upon these organizations to to be aware that that cultural training before people go into the field is is paramount. It, It really is very important. In future, Amija is working on creating guides for news organisations when covering certain conflicts. Mona also said diversity in the newsroom is key. 
our goal is to get more people of um, Arab and Middle Eastern background and, and interest and descent to, to be in more newsrooms so that there can be more diversity of opinion, more diversity of thought. And, you know, perhaps if, if there are more people in the newsroom, especially at the top, who are saying, wait a second, you know, we shouldn't use that word in that report, or we should maybe try, it's a little more nuanced than that. Mona and I discussed how facilitating diversity in the newsroom was a long-term process that required restructuring from the ground up, demanding accessibility as well as financial support, aspiration as well as societal change. Yet, despite the long road ahead, Mona was optimistic. Optimistic about the responses a media received following their statement. And so I think it's it's a big deal that we're getting this kind of attention that we wouldn't have gotten this perhaps 15 years ago. So that's a that's a positive change. People are paying attention. The mere fact that we're even talking about this, it's good. And I hope that I hope that we can do better. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by Hugo Goodridge and Rosie McCabe. Our theme music was by Omar Afil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.